The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co., established 1977, have personal and domestic water filters, which turns your ordinary tap water into great tasting, alkaline, ionized mineral water, which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals, and bacteria, so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Waters Co. was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. Zach Bush, MD, is a physician specialising in internal medicine, endocrinology and hospice care. He is an internationally recognized educator and thought leader on the microbiome as it relates to health, disease and food systems. To find out more about Dr. Zach Bush, please visit his website zachbushmd.com. That's Z-A-C-H-B-U-S-H-M-D.com. Zach, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you, brother? I am so glad to be with you, Pete. Thanks for also letting me be with your audience here. Mate, you are glowing as well. Everybody that I'm talking to lately seems to be glowing in this really interesting <laughs> time of history. It's like, this is what it's about. The light beings are turning on. I love it. Have you noticed that as well? Oh, man, this has been the most radical six months of human you know, awareness shift, you know, transparency to the status quo, and just a real sense of momentum as people are connecting all over the place on a mission-oriented belief system. I'm thrilled. It's just an awesome time to be alive. Mission-oriented belief system. Tell me about that. <laughs> Mobs. Yeah, I, you know, I- I've gotten the, you know, a lot of examples, I guess, but you know, one comes to mind is putting together this impact investment fund right now around regenerative agriculture and systems thinking around economies based on agriculture rather than based on oil. And uh, as you start to do that systems thinking, you start to realize that you've moved far beyond some sort of economic gain or you know, business model. You're really dealing with sociopolitical mindset and belief systems. And as soon as we start to orient that way, you know, we've been pounding on this kind of stuff for years and years. And suddenly when this pandemic happened, there was this gold rush of human talent pouring into this space of purpose-driven mission rather than, you know, economic portfolio. And it's just really intriguing to me that somehow through what looked like a fear paradigm, you know, march of the military state, which is certainly happening, but there's this undercurrent of human awakening and human alignment towards purpose that just is infectious. And I think more infectious ultimately than COVID. 
Yeah, I love that. And there's a word that I wanted to talk to you about today. It popped up in, a, in, I was listening to a fellow called Richard Rudd, who my wife, Nick, introduced me to. He created a philosophy based around the I Ching called the Gene Keys. And I was listening to a new recording that he did with a band called, I think it's Future Primitive. And this morning, the meditation was about innocence. But in that, it was also about innovation that comes through. And I wanted to talk to you about innovation because you've been at the forefront of so many different root cause solutions, as, as you like to call them. And my perception of being a human being is we are here to express ourselves in a way that not only benefits ourselves for evolution, but also for community and, the, and humanity and the planet. So talk to me about innovation and how do you, when do you know you've got that spark of something that this, I can... I have the vision and talk to me about your process of innovation. Yeah. I wish I could say I like somehow like envisioned this whole process and, and intelligently designed my life. And uh, that'd be far from the truth that my life has been a perfect meandering and bumbling through a <laughs> lot of journeys. So I spent 17 years in academic medicine, you know, kind of penultimate version of that. I was, you know, a clinical instructor at the university of Virginia after 10 years there. And, done all my postdoctoral work there in endocrinology and metabolism, internal medicine, and my research was in cancer, chemotherapy development. So I was very much in the you know, innovation side of pharmaceuticals. And you know, the thing I came up with you know, to make my focus was relatively innovative at the time. I was using a vitamin A compound to work towards you know, turning on cell suicide in cancer rather than trying to poison cancer. And this kind of passive approach to cancer therapy where you let the cancer cell realize that it's too damaged to repair itself and just needs to eliminate itself. And so it seemed like at the time a very enlightened stance. And so I think at that time, if you had asked me that, I said, oh, innovation is as simple as, you know, dive deep into a subject and find, you know, the pain points and the problem points that need to be solved for and then you know, bring all of your intuition around that thing. And it would have been very mechanical and, and biologic, you know, in its, in its belief system. And what's happened over the last 10 years has been an utter deconstruction of that linear kind of thought process to a career or to innovation itself. And, you know, my new realization, I think, as a business leader, as much as when I'm in a physician in my clinic, is that I am no longer thinking myself or my patient or the problem that we're looking at to innovate around as a biologic system. And I think if you look at, you know, some of the most brilliant minds around us, Elon Musk, you know, is often pointed to these days as kind of one of those super innovative, you know, things. But, you know, he named his company, obviously, around one of our, you know, shared passion superstars, who was Nikola Tesla. And Tesla was just like bubbling with new ideas all the time. And, thinking, you know, beyond global, he was thinking about the, and then you go back to Galileo 400 years ago, and with a simple device of a new telescope, he's the one to find out that the earth is not at the center of the universe as we know it, and the, we're somehow spinning through the cosmos, and the earth is rotating, and we're spinning around a sun, and like, mind-blowing stuff that went so far beyond any linear trajectory or progression of innovation, and so what leads to those moments of you know, paradigm shifting, old paradigm shattering innovations, I think is something that happens to the human experience that's not biologic. It's actually biophysics. 
And what I mean by that is there's a, an energy field that we live within or perhaps that we spring out of. And the energy field extends beyond our body. And so we are these aura machines that, are, you know, you now image that with, you know, technology and all that. But we express this aura of energy and we're interacting at the electron level just as, you know, a star would interact with its environment or the black hole at the center of that galaxy holding those billions of stars together is interacting through electron exchange. And to put this in perspective on that galactic scale, the Earth sitting in a vacuum only communicates with the universe at large through an electron stream. And so the electrical energy from supernovas and other galactic events, solar flares and the like, come streaming into our stratosphere through the aurora borealis or the northern lights. And so we are this halo effect that you see in northern and southern climates and all of this is is this stunning example of the only way we communicate with, with the greater system is an electromagnetic field that, that is throughout the cosmos. And in that field is all of the wormholes that connect all of the black holes that connect all of life ultimately to this intrinsic field. And so we call these dimensions, you know, and string theory, super string theory, and the boson field you're starting to get in 26 dimensions that are now, you know, constructed down into 10 symmetric dimensions on either side of the counterclockwise and clockwise dimensions of the universe. And now I'm sitting here answering a simple question of, well, how do you innovate? And the answer is, well, simple. You got 10 different dimensions going rotationally in different directions. And you stack those together and you get this double torus. And then you just sit quietly in the middle of that shit. <laughs> it's just like, wah! The whole universe is just humming at that point, and you are part of that. And this is what you're called to be as a human. This is why we, we have created what we've created. You know, for all of the passion I have for nature and all of the mind blow that I get out of looking at a, a conch shell or, you know, a nautilus or a freaking palm tree, all of that is also mirrored in my awe of the city skyline of Sydney or New York, or I love Melbourne as a city. I love the innovation and the energy of humanity there. And so I think what we're doing when we build something as, as beautiful as a city is we are sitting in this creative capacity. And now, as we start to think about what is the future we want to build, now that we've proven that Everything that we've built so far creates pandemics that destroys ecosystems and ecosystems destroyed creates more pandemics and pandemics then create social and economic collapse and political upheaval and rioting and blah, blah, blah. Okay, that was an interesting experiment. Now what are we going to do when we take the beauty of, of kind of that creative human mind, that technical mind, and we merge it with the cosmos, with the templates of nature? What are we going to innovate there? So. I'm famous for my super short answers and I just gave you a short answer to how do you innovate and that's my excitement about my companies and everything I do today is like can I sit in silence for just a moment and come into this double vortex of multiple dimensions that want me to be a creative force to co-create something beautiful with it and that helps me get out of this whole are you pro-vax or anti-vax are you uh, pharmaceutical allopathic anti alternative, integrative, what the hell you call yourself, and instead just find that silence and think, no, I'm just a creative force, and good luck trying to pin me down because I'm in, in motion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful, brother. I love that. And I, I was watching that recent film that just came out yesterday or the day before called Plandemic, and which was released on Brian Rose's 
network, London Real. And as I was watching it, I mean, it was a beautifully put together documentary. As I was watching it, I was, I was looking at this scientist and these experts talking about these pathogens that in our environment that are, it's nearly like they're coming to get us. I don't think it works like that. For me, that was the most glaring message that came out of that. I'm like, I don't think nature is, that's not its purpose for it to come against us. Like we have to live in fear of everything in our surroundings. I know you've spoken at length about viruses and I just, to encapsulate, is nature out to get us? (laughs) Do we have anything to fear in this realm? Like it feels like the biohazard suits, this, that, it's just, the mask, it feels like we're just, it's Looney Tunes. <laughs> I loved it. As soon as you were saying Looney Tunes, your crazy dog walked right, right, right behind <laughs> you as if it was like on cue, like here's a Looney Tune coming out. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> the choreography you have is beautiful going on in that room. But, you know, I think you're absolutely right. Like it's, so the film is worth seeing because I'm so intrigued that the filmmaker didn't make the darkest scenes in there. The darkest scenes in there were put online by the planning committee that charaded out this whole, you know, possibility of this global pandemic. And they wrapped up their, you know, dry run on this thing in October. And we start with the first cases coming in October, November, and then of course discovered in December. And then suddenly it's pandemic by February. And, and so those dark scenes that are in there are shot by the people that are showing us that they care and about our safety and are trying to plan for our safety. And they're literally like sitting in this dark convention center, no natural light, no windows around these like rectangle folding tables with like paper cardexes of their names and their fake roles in this future pandemic. And, you know, they're doing this whole thing. And I'm just sitting there watching that like, they literally did this thinking they were on task to prevent, you know, the collapse of humankind. And yet you look at this thing and it's like a high school class could have put on something that looked just like that. You know, it's just like so low vibration in, in the end. And I think now when we back up, we can realize there's no wonder our response has looked like it is because we planned this whole thing out in dark, cavernous convention centers in air-conditioned spaces, not breathing real air, forgetting what a leaf looks like, forgetting that, you know, there's there's actually, you know, something like clean air to be breathed, forgetting that you can see from a mountaintop for 100 miles, you know, what? of course you're going to think of this like dark, you know, response system in this fear paradigm if that's your reality. And so for each of us that then goes to quest away in our houses every night, and sit in front of television and consume this narrative of this attack on humans and everything else from the natural world, we're going to mimic that whether it doesn't have to make sense anymore. The response doesn't, mask doesn't have to make sense because it fits so nicely into this personal experience of isolation, fear of the outside, insecurity of who am I and why am I here? I'm really wondering if we were so eager to put those masks on because we're frankly not terribly comfortable with ourselves in public and putting a mask on suddenly felt actually pretty good. It's like, oh, I don't have to do my makeup today and I throw a pair of sunglasses on and I'm kind of hidden behind all that stuff and I can go to the grocery store and sweats and nobody's going to know. And so I, I have this hidden suspicion that part of the reason we've been so compliant with these masks 
comes down to sure the fear and then there's that but i think there's also this intrinsic loss of self-worth this intrinsic loss of self-identity in our confusion of our relationship to nature and then you layer on that of course thousands of years if not hundreds of thousands of years in our 200,000 year history of homo sapiens of warlike mentality that if we don't kill the thing that's out to get us first then we're going to die and so we've taken that warfare mentality from killing animals hunting them to extinction since 160,000 years ago we have that pattern if you read sapiens you know, just takes you through that whole human history of this is not a new thing that we've been engineering this extinction. We've been doing this for 160,000 years. But then you get to modern times and you can see over the last 10,000 years, we've turned our, our killing power from animals that are larger than us to one another. And we created the empire paradigm of humanity where for 10,000 years, we rise and falls with empires based on our ability to build infrastructure that's too large to support itself. So then we have to do conquest and extract wealth and then resources from something more than ourselves. And so then we become an empire and then we become so large of an empire that we start to lose supply lines, become too long and we can't protect our things. And when the core starts to rot and money always corrupts and so boom, 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 and that empire falls and then the next one rises. So that was our last 10,000 years. And so now I think we're in a new era where we're gonna take our killing mentality from large animals to other empires and other nation states to nature itself. And so we are using the same chemicals that we used for chemical warfare over the last hundred years and now directing that at a, an invisible virus that we think is attacking us. And so I think we're in the last throes of the human belief system of we need to kill things. And at this point, we've no longer killing humans. We're killing the very biology that allows life to happen on Earth as we start to destroy the virome, the bacteria, the fungi, especially within our soil, water, and air systems. As we destroy that ecosystem, we erode life itself, and suddenly we have a planet that can't support life, and that's where we're heading in the sixth grade extinction again. You have been an educator and a, a researcher on the microbiome, and let's talk about diversity then, because I think that's where sort of we're heading at the moment is wearing the masks, being inside. It feels like over the last few years, it's been sort of my interpretation is Western society is becoming homogenized. It's becoming quite beige. It's say everybody's heading towards the same thoughts. You know, if you have any, if you think outside of the box, and I'll, I'll use myself as an example, over the last nearly decade, I've spoken out about fluoride and toxic sunscreens and glyphosate and all of these things. And I've been labeled a crazy person by our mainstream media. And to the point where anybody that speaks outside of the, the narrative is condemned for that. And especially in this country here in Australia and even in New Zealand, it's a very strange energy that's here when you do step outside those norms. My perception is like it's becoming homogenized. The individual or the authentic expression of our individuality is getting numbed and pushed down or suppressed. Now, what happens to the microbiome or the, the bacteria in the soil? What happens when that happens? As an analogy, can you take us through that? And, and why is it that the most diverse in my opinion, seems to be the ones that flourish the most, the environments. Yeah, I think it's so fascinating that 
we have this, you know, simultaneous capacity for cooperative, you know, collusion in a story or a narrative and an extremely high tolerance for censorship on a very broad level. And censorship doesn't just mean taking down Instagram accounts and stuff like that. This new phenomenon that I'm still vague on, so I'll probably screw this up a little bit, but there's this canceling thing that I, I think is happening where people can somehow cancel other people and, and you know, attack them socially through, through masks and demand that everybody cancel this person. And so it's like judge, jury, you know, and you know, decision all being made in an instant because somebody thinks somebody is biased or not politically correct or you know, racist or misogynist. You know, any, any number of terms can be you know, whipped out and thrown at somebody and instantly cancellation happens on broad scales. And so this self-policing phenomenon that's happening to me is actually more frightening than having you know, big regulatory government bodies demanding a military state. Humans are resistant to military states. Humans don't like living under military states. And we can look at China, we can look at North Korea. These things can persist for a very long time, but they ultimately fall. And this is the last throes of, of control when you start locking down your peoples and all of that. The real danger, I think, is more in this subconscious policing of one another where we start to attack viciously and emotionally anything that's different than our own narrative running in our head. And we can't handle anything outside of, of our own perspective. And, you know, we have video after video now of people being attacked for not wearing a mask and, you know, physically beat for not wearing a mask, which makes absolutely no sense, of course. If you're afraid of the person who's not wearing a mask, don't, like, go and tackle them and beat the crap out of them and cover yourself in their saliva. Like, run away from them or something. I don't know what you do, but you don't go and beat the crap out of them. For, that doesn't make any sense at all. But that's the visceral nature of this self-policing subconscious state that we can slip into. And we've done it again and again as humans. This isn't new. You know, you can watch anything on Julius Caesar's era and what was happening with all the backstabbing and, you know, political correctness that was happening at the, you know, previous to the fall of Rome. You can look at, you know, the mess that was happening in Europe that kind of set the stage for the Third Reich to rise out of the ashes of World War One, And Hitler's, you know, moment was really created out of this moment where people were willing to be self-policed. They gave up their own rights for a sense of, of protection, for a sense of, you know, justice to be done around them. And so the Third Reich stepped in and said, we're going to do justice. We're going to take back the Rhineland. We're going to take back our, our territories that were stolen away from us we're going to take back the ability to have our own military and protect our own people and all this. And so that vulnerable state of disrepair after World War I created that. And in the U.S., we've seen decades of you know, collapsing civil liberties that are happening not because the government is going and taking away in force. Instead, events occur, 9-11 being a good example, but you know, I think really the, the Gulf War that then turned into the Iraq war that then turned into the mess we're in in Afghanistan and everything else. This, this creeping kind of phenomenon of terrorism now being this like secret, you know, threat, the terrorism and the virus having such similar, you know, properties to them as these invisible threats that we have to, to be protected from, because you can't protect yourself from terrorists because you can't see them coming. You can't protect yourself from a virus because you can't see it coming. So you need the government or the pharmaceutical companies to step in and protect you. And so 
this is how we welcome in something like mass vaccination of a vaccine that's neither been proven to be safe or effective. This is how we welcome in military surveillance or police surveillance of communities when we see uprisings in our streets of racial tension that we don't understand feels out of our control. And so we welcome in the police drones like we did in the United States in the last three months. We literally have you know, Twitter going off of like, oh, thank goodness there's a drone in Topanga Canyon outside of Los Angeles. Like, wait, you're celebrating this? You've got a police drone in your neighborhood and you see this as some sort of like reassurance? Like, you know, this dystopian world is emerging because we are in this conscious, subconscious, unconscious state of fear about our own sovereign boundaries and sovereign reality. If you come into this belief that you're a frail human body fighting for you know, a scarce group of resources on the planet, you're going to behave this way. And so this is the unconscious unawareness of our own sovereignty, of our own power, that's expressing itself through a desire for a military state to, to control us and to protect us. Whoa, wait, what if the transition is not to fight against vaccines or masks? What if the transition is to say, I am... I showed up here as an ancient soul in a human body. What is a soul? I don't know. It's like an energy field that organizes conscious thought or intention for life. And I've stepped into this biologic moment, moving from a waveform entity into a particle, just as we know light can be a particle or a wave anytime. I'm a light energy force that is a soul and probably here since the beginning of time as we understand it. And then suddenly I'm in a particle moment that I chose to be part of a tipping point of human history. And I'm here on huge purpose with an expansive opportunity to touch other human beings, to create a hyper intelligence as we plug into electromagnetic field to become part of a nature that's only driving for life. And it, it has no concept of death. It only has concept of growth, expansion, biodiversification, you know, adaptability, resilience. And that's what I'm tapping into as a soul. Now, suddenly, I see tanks in the street. I'm like, yeah, that looks like a fall of an empire happening. Not terribly concerned. I'm, I'm going to come over here and spin my magic with other humans and create the future that I want to, to see happen. That's the lack of empowerment that, that we have insidious among us that's leading to this bizarre, abusive behavior towards one another and the welcoming in of you know, the military state. <laughs> There's a lot to download and digest in that. So... I wanted to, the second half, talking about the solutions here, and, and I know you've, you've alluded to them then. Let's just say somebody's listening to this podcast for the very first time. They've never heard of Zach Bush before. They've never heard of Pete Evans before. And somehow somebody sent them this as their introduction to solution-based understanding and solution-based actions in the most fascinating time in human history as you as you started this conversation off with. So what are solutions moving forward for somebody that feels like they are disconnected or helpless? Take me through what you would say to somebody that's in that state of fear. Yeah, so I think it's a super important question because to date, our sense of empowerment through something like activism what do you picture when you think of an activist, uh, whether it be a political activist or a social activist? And typically, at least in my mind, I come up with you know people in the streets with signs and slogans, and they're they're chanting against the the status quo. And when you come out and put all your energy into something that is a no or an anti or those guys are wrong, this kind of negative you know agenda or purpose or sense of identity, you cannot overcome the common paradigm. You can 
shift it a little bit, but you will never create the new reality. And I think nowhere is this more true in the United States than our effort towards civil liberties and the end of racism and the end of you know systemic and systematic abuse to African Americans in our country's history, from the slave trade and and the organized effort to dehumanize the African as they came to the, the states, and then the systematic effort to demean them and keep them as property rather than not, and then as we release them from property we move into an era of kind of indentured servitude instead of servants. We, we put them into this indentured st- state of, you know, cash economy, no credit given, keep them out of the banking system, you know, get, make economic advancement very, very difficult for them. And then, and this of course is way beyond, you know, just Africans at this point, you know, we, we wiped out 97% of the first nations, tribes that lived here before Europeans showed up and, you know, it goes on and on with the, the devastations and travesties here. And the reaction to that abusive nature has large, by and large been the activists, anti-nationalists you know, or anti-war or anti-US, you know, kind of imperialism, however it takes its form, or we're anti-bigotism or anti-racist and there's so little power in an anti-message. If I'm anti-vax, I simply give more energy to a vaccine movement that's saying, well, that guy has no solutions for you. He's just against us and wants to you know, create fear around us. And here we are, the only ones providing you a solution. And so don't, and they're right. Like the anti guy's not giving you a solution. And so I've really worked hard in my own mission of my companies and now impact investing and everything else of thinking, what's the opposite of anti and the opposite of anti is become something and offer that future event. And so the exercise that all of us need to take who sit in fear right now, and and I fall into moments of fear of like, what's it going to look like for the United States to collapse? This is going to be a disaster for my children and my grandchildren. And, you know, this is terrifying. It feels totally out of my control. I need to become, you know, anti-Google because they're doing such and such or anti-Facebook or, you know, whatever the, the boogeyman is at the moment, I, I can slip into that on a regular basis. And then in a moment where you get away from that fear, you, you get away from, from thought and you just spend a, an hour hiking or you spend an hour in the ocean on a surfboard and you sit there and bob away. And I, that's what I do. I don't actually surf. I just sit on surfboards and bob in the, in the waves. And so I sit there on my surfboard pretending like I'm a surfer and I feel connected to not just the nature within me, but I feel connected to a group of people that are out there in the waves together. And so if you got 30 surfboards out there together and people have said, I'm going to reject all of my other priorities in the day, and I'm going to sit here to celebrate my opportunity to, to commune with a wave or the sun setting into the ocean, and I'm going to do that for this hour and this is my church, and, and I'm here in the spiritual sense. When you come out of that journey, it's very easy to, instead of being anti-anything, be something at that moment and, and envision where you want to go as you're bobbing on the waves. What is the future I want for me, my, my loved ones, my children, my grandchildren, and start to vision out a ways. 200 years from now, what would I like my community to look like. My God, I w- it would be so cool if we built houses that had walls that were, you know, constructed of mycelium and those mycelium beds that ran up our walls were insulative 
but also were the fiber optic cables that allowed us to communicate without any IT infrastructure. And we learned how to do electrical impulses through mycelial beds that could travel thousands of miles and we could communicate via the mycelium. And I would like to see that instead of televisions, we've got holograms of nature that are being born out of not some you know liquid crystal screen, but actually out of our own awareness. And we've figured out how to do an electromagnetic field projection of our mind. I would like to see what my wife is really thinking and what she's dreaming of so that it's not a honey-do list, but it's a honey creation list. And, and here's what I would like to be in, in 20 years. Here's the beauty I would like to create. And I would love to see that in real time. I would love to see a three-dimensional hologram of that. And so in 200 years, what do you want life to look like? And let's go do that. And suddenly being anti-masks or anti-vaccines seems like a waste of time. It's like, are you kidding me? That's like, that, that was the ballpark way back there. I passed them. I'm going 100 miles an hour. I'm, I'm building this new park over here that's just phenomenal. And you know, that's how you're going to become an agent of change and free yourself of the fear ultimately is stop being anti-anything and just be, be something. I hear you, brother. I've just spent the last few weeks with uh, some tribal people here in Australia and they're creating a new project at the moment, which is basically what you're talking about. And it's got some very smart people in this project, maybe a thousand, two and a half acre lots that people are going to create a community on. And it's the first that's happening where we're bringing, they're bringing in the tribal elders and the tribal community with anybody that wants to be a part of that, to learn and to share. And it's a beautiful project. And because it's the first one, I think everybody, there's a little bit like, oh, how is this going to work at the same time? Because it hasn't been done before in this country. And at the same time, there's so much optimism about it because they want to create a system that runs parallel to the current system, but at the same time detached from it. And the tribal people watching to see how this works, because if it does work, they're going to replicate it in Queensland, in Victoria, in Perth, or Western Australia, in Tasmania. So it's going to have this ripple effect. And to be a part of that, it's my wife and I, we're so excited to journey down this unknown path, but the destination or, or the journey seems to be proactive instead of anti. We're not running away from the system. We're creating a new system, if that makes sense. So let's bring that back into, and this is what I wanted to ask you, with the chaos, and I'll use the word chaos, with the chaos that is unfolding around us at the moment, how many innovations are you seeing popping up that, that you're like, yeah, this is exactly as it's meant to be happening. We needed this for this to emerge. This is like, do you ever sit back and just go, fuck, it's pretty wild out there, but how fucking amazing is it that, that I've heard of this popping up today? I've heard of this. I've heard of this. Talk to me about that at the moment for you. Yeah, that's the speed of innovation and speed of, you know, outside the box paradigm shifting creativity is just really explosive right now and my company i just feel very fortunate to be surrounded by great people but our company you know created itself with the vision of innovating in the areas of health energy and ecology with the original identity as a health company and the reason why we came upon energy and ecology as as necessary steps is you can't actually improve human health or health of a species of any sort until you start to address the way in which that species has access to energy. 
because ultimately we are biophotonic. We aren't, we're not biologic. We run on physics. We run on electron transfer. And so first step to getting a healthy, vibrant you know, species and planet is to increase the biophotonic potential for that species. So we need to rethink energy. Right now we have an extractive energy industry where we're taking ancient you know, soil turned into fossil oils and all of this and extract that and burn it knowing that's, that's a, a non-renewable resource. The alternative to that is now obviously coming very fast at us in the form of hydrogen technologies and cold fusion. There's so much potential energy in a cubic centimeter vacuum space that it, we can light the entire you know, planet with a very small amount of, of material and it's completely renewable. And so it's liberating the energy from vacuum space, which is full of electromagnetic field, through the interaction of elements on Earth. And that's starting to become a very fast reality. And it's been done for decades. Cold fusion reactors were present in the 1960s and 70s at a couple of universities and all that. And so this stuff has been done. But now the innovations that are happening are making it scalable and real for us. And so technology coming out of Australia, for example, around hydrogen fusion is really exciting. And it looks like with the agreements with the Philippines, it would be the first you know, country for us to see go from very low on the totem pole in green initiatives and all that to the very top as they become the first energy independent country through hydrogen, clean energy. And that kind of paradigm leap coming at us is, is truly thrilling. Because as soon as you see that reaction happen, you understand that there is no market force that can keep that thing from happening. It's too good to be suppressed and it has to happen now. And so the technology is breaking through so quickly now and through unlikely groups. You know, you've got really heart centered, spiritually centered people that are at the core of these companies. This is not the old robber baron kind of, you know, steel and iron age of, of American industrialization, the British and all that. It, this is a new era where we have people who are showing up with that mission on purpose sense and they're being given the visions of where to take technology to this regenerative state. And so we see companies like Nike and you know, other organizations, these Fortune 500 companies, hiring people now that are kind of in this ethereal space of they're not business people. They're actually really focused on being in this energetic field of creativity and energetic field of integrity and human responsibility on the planet and all that. And so they're hiring people that should would have never and never did fit into Fortune 500 C-suites are being hired to start to create this, this alchemy, this chemistry of creativity for these companies so that they can become aligned with, with nature, become aligned with uh, this stuff. And so I've, I've been asked to speak in the most unlikely of, you know, things, you know, PricewaterhouseCoopers had, had me on last year to speak to a group of their innovation teams and all of this. And you're sitting there and they, you know, speaking right after me is the CEO of Clorox. You know, it's just like you couldn't have put me with a more, less unlikely crowd of people. And it turns out Clorox is a massive fortune 500 company that has a whole suite of companies they've merged or acquisitioned over the last you know, 30 years. And they're trying to become more green. Here they are poisoning water systems with bleach as their primary industry. And yet they have a sense that this is not sustainable. We're not going to be a Fortune 500 company in 20 years if we keep on this track. And so they're desperately trying to diversify their portfolio. And so they're buying things like 
Burt's Bees is a good example of one of their companies. Like Burt's Bees, you go by the store and it's like, you know, oh, sweet. The honeybees are making chapstick for us. And it's such a sweet and, and innocent brand. And they're, they're owned by Clorox. And, and so you start realizing, wow, everybody's trying really hard. And right now they're, they're greenwashing or they're being blamed for greenwashing. And yeah, that's definitely happening. They definitely overmarket, you know. Anheuser-Busch now comes out with, you know, we have this, or, this beer and if you buy a six pack, we'll, we'll regenerate six feet of farmland. These things are, are odd initiatives that smack of a little bit of marketing BS when you hear them. But what it's speaking to is the consumer. As the consumer rises in consciousness, as the consumer aligns itself, these CPG brands that have dominated the landscape forever are realizing they're not going to be around in, in a few years. And, and interestingly, the first Fortune 400, which before it came to the Fortune 500, of the first Fortune 400 that were named back in the 60s or whatever it was, 70s, there's only one company left on that, that original 400. And so it, it's telling that in half a century, all of the biggest corporations are gone. And the only one hanging on right now is GE. And so GE is hanging on by a thread and they're down at the bottom of the pack now. The world changed so much in 50 years and it changed so fast and radically that those big Fortune 500 companies couldn't keep up. They were mammoth, you know, bureaucratic agencies and no matter how many mergers and acquisitions they wanted, they couldn't stay relevant. That's where the current 500 are at as they're now hitting this new paradigm, this new era where planet Earth is in the forefront of minds. And, you know, you hear, you know, 16 Democratic nominees in the United States all saying that their number one problem that they wanted to address was the ecology and climate change and this kind of stuff. That's never happened in a single political race ever. I'm not even expecting any of them. Well, all of them that said that actually were out of the race now, but it's the first time we've ever heard that kind of rhetoric, you know, trickling into presidential campaigns at that level of sense of urgency and import and a sense of obligation for them to say that even if they didn't mean it, even if they didn't have a clue what they're talking about, they felt obligated to say that that was the number one thing. And so that's exciting because the Fortune 500 companies of today destroy the ecosystem as we know it. And when I talk about ecosystem, it's not just the soil, water, and air. They, they created false economies globally. They created, you know, artificial you know, market forces through the exploitation of child labor or near slave labor in Asia or whatever it is. And that area has to be gone. And, and so we, we will replace all of that, not by being anti-Coca-Cola or being anti-Clorox. We're going to simply create the companies that are going to define the future that we want to see. I 1,000% agree. I mean, we do have the power. I've been saying it for a while. You know, if you mainstream media, if you have an issue with it, just turn it off. If everybody in the country, Australia, I mean, I could see it, 26 million people, just all of a sudden, if they chose to, turn off the television and don't watch mainstream news. I said, they only exist because of advertising. It's as simple as that. If they've got no eyeballs, the game's over. They will have to reinvent themselves if they can, and they will, or new platforms emerge. We've been talking about this with your team as well. New platforms keep emerging, like Plandemic, London Real. Within a year, that has just become a new mainstream media platform, whether the mainstream media like it or not. But that's the news channel that so many different people now are like, there we go. I'd rather watch that than that. And I'm finding it so exciting at the moment. Yet I fall into that element. I mean, even yesterday in Australia, our prime minister came out in the morning on I think it was one of the number one radio talkback shows and said, 
we've just done a deal with the vaccine. We're going to make it mandatory or as mandatory as possible for the whole country. Six hours later, his internet or Instagram and Facebook and everything was just flooded with comments just saying, you're fucking crazy. We do not consent. It was six hours. And he came out on the, the largest radio station and said, oh, no, no I, I made a mistake, basically. We're not going to make it mandatory. And, but we will encourage. Now, encourage, you could interpret to be maybe there'll be travel restrictions or job restrictions or school restrictions if you don't. And whether that was just a ploy, who knows? But my perception is like, okay, the people have the power here. If we really want to change something, we have the power. And I feel like these sort of, like yesterday, I didn't post anything in the morning when I heard that there was going to be mandatory vaccines. I was like, I'm just going to sit and wait. There was an intuition in me. I was like, no, no, wait, 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 wait. And then when it backstepped, I was like, okay, I'm happy to share now. Like this proves that we have the power. That's my interpretation of it anyway. I could be completely wrong, but we do have the power. My family and I have been using beautiful, high-quality essential oils for the last 20 years to live healthily every single day. Now, if you're passionate about health and are ready to step into leadership, I want to invite you to partner with my team and I to build a beautifully successful doTERRA business. Register at PeteHLC.com backslash Pete. That's Pete. HLC, which stands for the Healthy Living Collective, .com backslash Pete. Oh, no, you're right. And I think the politicians are terrified of social media for the same reasons I mentioned earlier, like in this cancel society where you can suddenly cancel somebody for saying the wrong thing. Like politicians are terrified of that. It's, it's very difficult to be a politician today and be under public scrutiny and be jumped on instantaneously. And, and, and the public has access to you in such unique ways now. There's a danger in that, and there's also an opportunity there. And I think the danger will be if we use it to be derogatory, be demeaning towards politicians, or to otherwise, you know, be the condemnation and the judge at the same time, you know, and, and really, you know, exercise this same kind of military draconian fashion that the state's coming down on us. If we use that back through these you know, manipulations of social behavior to have the same draconian effects on our politicians, then we just create war. And so we need to think beyond that. And if you don't like what your politician is saying, learn from it. I'm fascinated by, you know, one of your most flagrant right-wing, you know, media commentators. I think you actually had, had the clip on your, your social media recently of his, you know, deriding Australia for the 386 deaths costing $386 billion and all of this. And you share that on social media and you get this immediate, at least I do, when I share that kind of stuff, I get this immediate attack of like, well, that's a you know, right-wing you know, person, that's this or that. And it's, why is it that, you know, if that's true, if that's a radical, you know, highly biased, racist, sexist, whatever, you know, epitaphs you want to put on it. Why is that the only person who has the alternative narrative happening in the media? Where did we lose the middle? Like, wh why is all of the narrative here? And then we have a couple of outliers of, of people who love to be inflammatory, love to come in as these angry, you know, alternate anti-voices to the common narrative. What happened to the narrative? Where did the discussion happen? What happened to dialogue? What happened to real 
investigative journalism where critical questions are asked. And that disappeared in a single generation. I certainly grew up around that, and I consider myself young, so my kids would differ, differ on that opinion. But I feel young, and I re- certainly remember you know, these, these forces of, of critical thought in my memory are like Tom Brokaw and you know, all these guys. They shaped my ability to ask critical questions as a scientist eventually. Like, okay, there's the common narrative, but let's dig into that common narrative, and let's get at some of the details and really ask, how did we come to that conclusion? That's not done anymore. We just say, here's the common narrative. You know, here's even a more incredible headline about the common narrative. Here's an even more extraordinary, you know, grabbing headline about the common narrative. Nobody asks how we got the common narrative. Nobody asks why are we all so convinced this is the common narrative. Or those questions don't even get slightly asked anymore in mainstream media. And it's because exactly your point is it makes money. Uh, media became entertainment in the, in the 1990s through some legislative decisions in the United States. Clinton signed in 1996 that allowed the monopolies to form. And, and we turned these into advertising giants more than they ever had been before. And we saw the consolidation of what had been thousands of media outlets drop into just a few hands. And that was the moment where advertising became such a force to be reckoned with at the economic level that it would be there. Now we're in an interesting time when fewer and fewer people are watching network television. And you know, this, if not for this pandemic, we would have seen the end of television. And we're going to see it because as soon as the pandemic news starts to drop off, if they can't create you know, a bigger problem to talk about than what we've seen so far, we're going to see the end of television as we understand it. Because the only thing that was keeping the networks alive on television were sports. And so ESPN was literally you know, the lifeblood of the whole Fox organization. And so if it wasn't for their you know, ESPN 1, 2, 3, 4 channels and their golf channel and all of the other sports, nobody's watching television anymore. And everybody's getting their content online from a Netflix or an Amazon Prime or whatever they're watching. And so we are seeing the end of an era. And it's the nightly news and the, the inflammatory nature of it that has to take these more and more extreme measures to keep people tuning in. And so that's part of the problem that created this pandemic of fear was we had a media desperate for something that would create the gravitas that this pandemic has allowed them to create to save a dying industry. And so it's one of the Fortune 500 companies, you know, a list of them will be those top media companies, Time Warner and the rest will disappear if they don't reinvent themselves elsewhere. So what's the new paradigm? So we can assume television is dying, it's in its death throes. It's creating fear as much as it can because it's the only thing they've got left. It's the only tool they have left to keep us there because they lost the sports. Nobody's playing sports anymore. And so they're desperately trying to get the NBA to start playing again. The NFL will start playing again by the fall because if there's not NFL on U.S. television by the fall, there's nobody on TV. And so they're desperately trying to get people back. And so you see these things. I don't know if you've seen them, but we have U.S. players who are some of our youngest, healthiest, most incredible specimens of humanity walking through these you know, jet sprays of chemical toxins to sterilize their bodies before they walk into practice. And it's just like, okay, now you're going to go sweat and breathe heavily these chemicals that are going to absorb right through your skin into your bloodstream while you're exercising. That's going to cause cancer in 10 years. And so it's just this extraordinary idiocy that we do to these players now in an effort to monetize their behavior. And so the amount of economy we extract out of the brains of smashing NFL helmets together is just mind-blowing. 
And I really respect the Australians for just like skipping the whole helmet and just smashing their heads together in rugby. Like there's something to that. Like I, I like just the raw, you know, blatancy of that. Like just screw the safety. Let's just clash heads. So you got to respect that. But, uh, you know, I think that ultimately what we're seeing is the, the death throes of a media industry that's become an entertainment industry that became an advertising industry. And of course, what's replacing it immediately is the real advertising in the world is no longer around televisions, it's around the Google big data. And so big data from Google and Facebook and, you know, all of the other insidious, you know, resources that we now go to on a daily basis, that's the advertising thing that's taking over the world. And so that's, that's why the pendulum is swinging off television as we've put all of our other activity over here. And so in a bit of, you know, blue sky thinking here together, what if we created a safe space for humanity to use the internet as an interconnection for human ingenuity that couldn't be exploited by advertising? What if we created that safe space for human ingenuity to connect other humans and we didn't advertise against them? So that's one of the thought experiments of solutioning that we're working on for the last five years with our tech company, with our software development firm, is how do we re-envision the internet where it cannot be exploited by advertising? And, and what would that create? And I think it's ultimately designing the internet to function more like a mycelial network than, than a technology platform. And if you understand that mycelium are always looking for the weakest link and then to strengthen that, you understand how nature has developed on a planet that was born out of noxious acid pools and volcanic activity and the most horrific of environments. And yet life started to form and life got a, a foothold and it created life abundant, not by trying to create a monopoly, not trying to take over the world because they figured out how to live in a volcano. Those archaea, those archaea bacteria, they took over because of horizontal gene transfer. They figured out how to move genes to and fro in real time so that as soon as they found a market advantage in, in the ecosystem, they passed that to all of their neighbors instead of becoming the monopoly. There was this intrinsic knowledge within the matrix of life itself that biodiversity and the information exchange, the free exchange of information and opportunity is the way life is achieved. Now let's create that kind of environment online where horizontal gene transfer becomes the norm, where you start to discover something. And instead of trying to now scale that to take over the whole industry, you now go and tell 300 other people, I just innovated this thing and it's going to be mind-blowing effectively in my neighborhood. Let me show you how to do this and I'll become part of your board to do that same thing in your neighborhood as you create a company and I'll now sit on 300 different boards with the same innovative capacity and watch that thing that I created now be retranslated and recreated and rebirthed through 300 different lenses that are informed by cultural and, and ecologic and economic factors that are specific to each of those new regions. That's a beautiful model. What if we start to co-create with one another and we no longer care about the monopoly because I can make more money sitting on 300 boards of an idea I seeded into the population than I'll ever make by trying to be, you know, the big next fortune 500 company. And I can do it with no effort. I don't have to go hire all the people. I don't have to go be all this stuff and all this. And so that's the excitement that I have really is, you know, this opportunity for us to move. I feel like this whole conversation today or part of it has been and I don't know about how much longer I can have you for, but I, I, there's two other things I'd love to talk to you about. It feels like that so many ideas or these structures or systems are dying. And maybe dying isn't the right, right terminology, but there seems to be a fear of death that humans have. And also looking at 
pharmaceutical companies and mainstream media for the last decade. Uh, and I've been in mainstream media for two decades now working in that field as behind the camera and in front of the camera. And I've, I've seen the ratings was, was like heading off a cliff. As you said, mainstream media was going to go. I could see the pharmaceutical companies sort of heading off the cliff because people are wising up going, fuck, we've got side effects here, here, here. Adding more pills into us just is starting to seem insane. And so I was like, okay, well, that industry looks like it's heading towards the cliff, whether it's now or 10 or 20 years, but it's dying. And, and I can't help but feel like even innately that these, these corporate entities are so fearful of their own mortality and their own death as human beings are. And personally, I've, I've experienced my own death through ceremonial work in the past and I've found it to be completely liberating for me. It removes fear. And I wanted to ask you the question about death and how we can reimagine that for ourselves. I love that question. And, uh, you know, I feel like we could spend two hours on this topic because it really does form a nice foundation for everything else we've talked about in that to go into a creative space, to turn the parts of your brain on that are capable of plugging into the energy field of the creative juices of the universe, really. And, and to enter that space, you have to get yourself out of fear. The moment that a fight or flight sympathetic response happens, you shut down those couple areas in your brain that are necessary for creative thought. And so the thing that we subconsciously fear the most is death. And this is why when somebody gets a cancer diagnosis, all the bells go off, flags go up, like, oh my God, this is the end. And they flip into this fight or flight state and they can't think creatively about their own health journey or their philosophy for health and what they might want to do with their chemotherapy or not chemotherapy or that whole decision tree. They can't make rational decisions because they're in this fight or flight state and they've lost the creative brain in that process. And so fear around this concept of death, I think is really undermining and driving us faster and faster into the grave as a species because of our inability to think creatively. And so to really free yourself up and, and this happened to me, you know, very much at the same time that I, I transitioned out of academia. So 10 or 11 years ago, I went through a process of major depression. And in that darkness of the sensory deprivation that happens when you're depressed, when you, when you slip into major depression, you can't feel things, you can't feel emotions, you can't tap into the feeling of love for your own children. Like it's terrifying. It's like you're like this numb you know, thing taking up space and you feel like wasted energy. You feel like, you know, black hole in your own environment and you don't know how to, food doesn't taste good. You don't crave food. You know, you can't feel sex. You can't feel, you know, the breath of air in your nose. It's just like this numbness sets in. And in that state, I finally looked at my own mortality very clearly and it was like, okay, you know, I think I should probably put some pieces in place. So I you know, start shopping around for insurance companies that will cover suicide so that my kids will be taken care of with, with uh, some money and I can pay off the house and, you know, all that would be okay. And once you find yourself in that thought process of you're planning your own death, you know, you're planning for best case scenario when I die, you start to lose the fear around the death and now you're planning for it and, and you've got this weird phenomenon going and that is a dangerous moment for a human. There's nothing more insidious than major depression to steal our life force away. 
but if it gave me anything, I remember sitting in a very specific part of my house and thinking when I am no longer depressed, because as a physician, I saw people go into depression, come out of depression. I, I could rationally outlies the fact that I would someday not be depressed or I would be dead, one of the two. But in that rational thought of when I am not depressed, I hope I never forget this feeling right here. And what I was feeling was a state that was absent of fear of death. And I remember feeling, remember wanting to bring that forward with me. At the same moment, as I transitioned out of academia, I went into hospice care and I, I became an associate director for a hospice service and ended up being board certified in hospice as my third subspecialty. And I loved the hospice world. It was like this breath of fresh air for me as a physician because suddenly my job was to take people off of medicines. And so people would be, I was admitting 80 people to our service a week and our first job is strip down all the meds, only keep the ones that may be you know, mediating pain or anxiety and otherwise take it all off. And so you're stopping all kinds of meds, the sleep drugs and the anti-anxiety stuff or the antidepressant stuff and you're taking off the antipsychotics and the cholesterol medicines and blood pressure medicines. And you're just like uncovering this, this human being. And, and as the veil came off, you start to see a human reemerge out of the drug state and you see the beauty of humans. And there's something even beautiful about a human when they're in pain and dealing with pain is that pain brings you right into the moment. And I think that's why we have pain. That's why we were gifted with the sensory experience of pain is to say, right now you have a problem and it's right here. Pay freaking attention here because you're getting your leg chopped off by the saw. Stop the saw. If we didn't have that, that pain signal to bring our attention to the problem at hand to reprioritize our life, we would have a situation. And so when you pull back on the pain meds until you find the pain threshold again and you, you try to back off and find somebody's reality, when they're in that moment and they're brought into the present moment, they say incredible things, beautiful things. And over and over again, I got to see people who had gotten past any threshold of fear for death and were actually kind of excited about it. They were excited and curious about what was on the other side. What was their God going to look like on the other side? What was their universe on the other side? What was their, their perception of nature and reality going to look like from the other side of that veil? And excitement around their family, realizing my kids are going to be fine without me. And you know, it was only through this codependence that I had in my head that I thought they weren't going to be fine without me. And I realized they're human beings that showed up on purpose. They're doing these beautiful things and they're going to be fine. And, and so you get somebody in that space and you start to realize your life is, wow, really mal-prioritized here. And so that's beautiful watching that human journey. And, and when you get to work in ICUs, you spend a lot of time resuscitating people from that moment of death. And there was a series of events that happened that I've accounted in other podcasts for and other things that there was one night in particular where I was doing resuscitations off and that happens to you pretty often in the hospital setting. But on this one night, it actually worked three times. 96% of the time, 94 to 96% of the time that we do a code in the hospital Shocking the heart, drugs, all the fancy stuff you see in EER television shows and the rest, 96% of the time that doesn't work. Somewhere in the 4 to 6% of the time that person comes back and we get the heart restarted and they have a little bit of neurologic function and can communicate. The vast majority of the time we're unsuccessful. But on that weird night, I had three of these line up and they all came back within the, the, that first 24 hours to a neurologic condition where they could actually talk to me about their experience. And they all said nearly the same thing, which was bizarre because they were so different in human beings. One was a totally estranged gentleman dying from complications of AIDS, had been rejected by his family, rejected by his church, rejected by his community, was dying alone, 
it was one friend who had been a, a previous partner to him years back who heard that he was dying and came and visited him twice in his four you know month decline and death ultimately in in the ICU. And next door is this African-American pastor who's the center of his community and has for 50 years been this heartthrob and spiritual leader in his group. And he literally had 200 visitors over the course of just five days in the ICUs. Like we were inundated by this guy's visitors and we had to set up a whole system of allowing enough visitors. I mean, he was this out of control love pouring into this human being. And then we have this interesting high school kid who has all these genetic defects that he's dying from complications of and beautiful human being. And, you know, his body is just crumpled by this genetic disorder, but his mind and spirit are beautiful. And for that, he became like the mascot of his high school and everybody loved this kid. And so like the pastor, he just had all these families writing in and people, you know, his whole school made videos for him that we would play for him. And it's just beautiful. These three individuals couldn't have more different life stories, died, come back. And they came back with such similar stories of, Hey, why did you bring me back? And B, it was so extraordinary that for a few minutes of time, I felt completely accepted. And here you're looking at this pastor and this kid and you're like, you didn't feel accepted. Your, your community is like literally like pouring out love. And you see the AIDS patient dying estranged from everybody. And you say, well, of course he, he didn't feel accepted. But the same sensation is happening over here in the pastor or the, the kid who's the mascot of the school wow, we are all walking around with a sense of, I, I am not seen, I am not worthy, I am I'm not important, I am not understood. I am, what are we doing? How is it possible we're all that disconnected? And the first experience we have is I am completely accepted. Now let's think to nature for a second and see what life does with death. Because it's hard to envision that for the human transition here. As you move into the spiritual environment and you see incredible things and, and the stories that I could tell you, just nobody would believe. Like the stories that you hear from your patients as they come back from this near-death experience, they go, they go into other universes. They go into visiting you know, ancient beings and angels and all kinds of crazy stories coming out of people. But nothing quite as powerful for me as that moment of I am completely accepted and my soul always has been and I, I'm here on purpose. Now let's think about just a simple tree dying in nature and, and look at na what nature loves to do with, with this. And so some recent studies in genomics are showing us that when a tree dies and falls in the forest, the moment it hits the floor, it becomes the foundation for life. And I think it's one year into its death, you know, one year post-death, that single tree trunk has given life to 100,000 different species, one tree trunk. That is not something that we should consider death. That is literally becoming a universe in and of yourself. And that's, I think, what we are capable if we were to reorient our, our fear paradigm of death and into a concept of rebirth not some rebirth of some previous normal, but a rebirth of a whole universe of life potential. And we do that at the genetic level. There's enough DNA in a single body. Pete, if I took you and strung you around Mother Earth with your DNA, you would wrap around the center of the Earth, around that whole circumference, two million times. That's enough nucleotide sequences to tell us the entire story of human history, planetary history, and beyond, I believe. I believe there's enough nucleotide sequences to code out all of life 
within a single human being. And when we die and we start to rearrange the physical and energetic tissues within us, it begs the question of if we were to do death right and we were to, instead of collapsing into some sort of fear paradigm, but we, we celebrated and created ceremony as our ancestors did and indigenous wisdom in the aboriginals is brilliant and they welcome that person back into the universe and they see this and in that they connect this hyper consciousness and the person's life now extends not to the legacy of 80 years it extends into the 80 trillion years and every directions in the in the cosmos and the aboriginals understood that kind of vastness of the human experience and the vastness of the soul and you come to the First Nations people in North America, same kind of philosophy or, or the deep wisdom in the, in the Irish traditions in Northern Europe. It's just everywhere. We had this awareness that there was no death. There was only recreation. There was only life to be had and life to be had more abundantly. We will build a different society when we stop fearing death for sure. And, and I, I conclude with just as lengthy of an answer as I started with, I think. And, and I apologize for that, but, but I hope that answered where you were going. Yeah, brother. I love you, mate. I've got tears in my eyes as, as in my own journey into, that, into the infinite possibility realm. It was like an experience in death. When I reemerged into this, at the first thing that I said was, what the fuck are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> that what I just experienced that was so beautiful and so familiar and so everything that was what you experienced was real and that's interesting is what we're experiencing now is not necessarily real this feels like the dream that's that's the only way I could describe it is what you and I are experiencing now is what they would call the illusion or the dream and I'm so grateful for that I don't want to be in that other space because this is this is a trip what we're experiencing now it really is a trip not in the psychedelic sense even though you could potentially say that but it's like wow in the other realm it's everything this is a moment in time what we get to participate in the game of life at the moment where we can feel in that pain and six weeks ago i had a surfing injury and when that happened, my hamstring tore off my bum, basically. Like, it was a pretty catastrophic injury. And as soon as it happened, first was, fuck, this hurts. Second was, thank you. I don't know why this is happening, but thank you. I've been a hell of, I haven't been in this much pain that I can remember in my life. What an experience to experience. <laughs> And it hurt, but at the same time, I was so excited about it too. But it hurt. And again, I was just like, this is, this is such a trip to experience this. What a, what a gift. And, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know where to go from here. I mean, I, I, we could talk about the microbiome and a whole lot of other things, and hopefully we can get to do that another time. And I just want to tell you, mate, I love you, and you are a shining light of love and Humanity needs people like you. Maybe I shouldn't say the word need, but it is beautiful to see people like yourself and others that have a vision for the future that benefits the universe. And somebody said to me yesterday, they said, and, and I don't mean to be egotistical here, but they said, you're, you're, you're a bit of a light worker, Pete. And, and I, I turned around to them and I said, we all are. We all are. 
no one is no one shines brighter than anybody else or has more light or brightness than anybody else on the planet we all are might just need a little bit of a, a lens cleanse or whatever you know or a little bit of our armor taken off but we're all vibrating at that frequency yeah and you're sitting there saying that and i just can't shake the image of that horse that was just like getting up in your stuff the other day on on instagram yeah that horse is absolutely licking the hell out of your head and and it was just so fantastic to watch because uh, that horse is just loving your whole energy field like there's just like that horse knows and can see you for who you are and the rest of us are looking through this glass darkly and and we see this vague semblance of human beings around us not realizing the, the brightness of the light there and you know, for the same way that you, you know, thank you for your love, by the way, I receive that and I reflect that back at you. I love you, Pete. I love, love your passion for life. I love the message you bring to the world. I, I love the alternate, you know, narrative that you bring to us. And at the same time, I realize that when somebody says, you know, you're this light force for love and all of that. Yes, I totally believe that. I think that's why I'm here. So I'm on purpose in that. But at the same time, you know, social media is a great, powerful way to keep in humility if you're willing to be in that space because you realize when hundreds of people reach out and say, oh my gosh, that post was amazing and you just, you know, totally touched me in your life force, there's always a subset of people in there that are so angry at you and, and seeing so much darkness in what you're saying and, and they put all these words that aren't even on your post. They say, well, why do you hate this and that? I didn't even say anything about hate. I was talking about love. Like, where'd you get hate? And you realize that the people that are seeing all the beauty in me and then my words and my posts, they're not actually seeing it from me. They're seeing their own beauty in the words that I write. And they're seeing themselves within that space. And that's what they're reacting to. In the same way, somebody who's coming in and for some God knows what reason they're following me because they hate everything I write. But when they're having that reaction, they're seeing themselves. And, and they hate that they can't have that same experience, that exuberance and all of that. And so it puts me in a space of like, ah, that's curious. When I wrote that post, I could not even imagine or fathom that sort of reaction to it. And I feel that often about social circumstances. I'm, I'm probably somewhere on the spectrum or something like that because I don't ha know how to interpret a human emotion well. When I see it, I get a little stressed out because I'm not sure how I should physiologically respond to that emotional outpouring often. And so especially if it's you know, negative, if, if there's like this intensity of negative whether it's fear or guilt or sadness or grief or whatever it is I, I tend to not know how to react and it's easy to, to then think well we're just being ineffective as humans I don't know how to communicate with my fellow humans especially when they're in pain or suffering or anything unless I just am willing to be a peaceful mirror and then when they see the hate and they see the, the fear and they, they throw that at me and it bounces off the mirror without any reaction and I don't take it and hurl it back at them and it just hits the mirror and has no place to go. They've cleared that. And now they have an opportunity to read something different the other day or the next day. And I'm intrigued if we could start to interact like that as a human species. Like, Never think that somebody's actually reacting to you because they don't even know who you are. They can't even see you. They're looking through the glass darkly. How could they actually be reacting to you? Somebody has all this anger at me for you know, hating the pharmaceutical industry. And I, don't hate, I, was, I was the pharmaceutical industry. I, I don't hate myself. I, I was doing the best I could. I thought I was doing something really good. Like, there's no hatred towards that. That'd be ludicrous. It's, it's a, not even a thing, the pharmaceutical industry. Like, why would I put energy into that? And so if we can start to just realize that 
in the best of, of scenarios, we are this passive mirror to others. And in the reflection of themselves, they can perfect themselves and know that the anger that we pour towards one another, and, and we hurt those that we love the most through our flippant comments or through our exhausted nature or whatever it is. And so our spouses have to take so much of, of the baggage of a day, you know, through these little flippant moments or exhaustion or, or just, you know, stress or whatever's accumulated in our, our field. If we've accumulated in the day, it's because we thought people were reacting to us. We need to be in our pure state. And to do that, we need to realize that people are reacting to themselves and reacting to the fear they carry with themselves and the guilt that they carry in themselves and all the rest. And we're doing the same thing. I tend to hear everything that is my fault. I hear something from my wife or my kids and I'm like, oh, geez, screwed up again. And, and I voice that and, and they're always like, nobody said anything was your fault. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> it's just, we're talking about this thing and now it's Zach's fault. Like, and that's such a freaking egocentric belief system that it could be my fault because that then suggests that I'm providing for everything else that is going right. And then there's one thing I failed. No, I don't, I'm not doing anything right for any of those people. I, my kids are their own people and they're successful on their own right. And they, you know, they're off in cities that I, I don't get to visit enough and they're doing their thing. They're adults. They're, they're cruising. And so if I see it as some failure of my own, that's just me internalizing it and creating an empathic moment for my own good, to, to swage my own need for an emotional experience. You know, I don't know what, how I went down that rabbit hole with you, but I'm, I do know that I am excited to become a better mirror to humanity because in the end, humanity is freaking beautiful. Mm. I know we've done awful things. I know we've done terrible things to one another. I know we are currently doing terrible things to children and indigenous people and to women and every minority known. We are a colossally corrupted and disconnected humanity on the low vibration biologic phase, but on the reality outside of the dream. Oh my gosh, are we a beautiful 7.8 billion souls that showed up right now to shift the awareness of a species, to shift the potential for a planet at its tipping point to maybe prevent that sixth extinction and instead participate in the greatest creative force that's ever happened on the planet. 7.8 billion souls, how beautiful is that? 7.8 billion souls so much different than 7.8 million billion humans. That sounds really scary. 7.8 billion souls sounds very interesting. I'm intrigued. I'm very curious to see what happens when we hit 9 billion in 2050. What did 9 billion souls that show up on purpose look like in their potential to create something new? When we feel hopeless about climate change and oil companies and pharmaceutical companies and all that, step up watch 9 billion souls and see what the potential future looks like. And that's where we find our joy. That's where we find our hope. Mm, I love it, mate. I'm so glad you took us down that path to finish with. And I, and I catch myself, I, you know, I, I did post yesterday and at the end of the night, I was like, fuck, I really shouldn't have done that. That's projection of me onto the prime minister. And, you know, he probably thinks he's doing the right thing, you know, and I, I see light in there, you know, it, it's in there. It's in Bill Gates. It's in all of these people. In every human being, there is light and it's bright. It's just how many layers have we decided to protect ourselves from sharing that or receiving it from other people? And something I still need to work on is to, to see that in every, everybody as I do in myself. And I think that's my probably all of our ongoing journeys of discovery. Yeah. <laughs> and every day I'll be challenged with that or given the opportunity to, are you on the path, Pete? Here's another opportunity for you to see whether you can, 
you can sit in that space of trust and love and acceptance and surrender and even if you feel like the world is going down the fucking toilet <laughs> there's still light i think it's a great point and i'm glad you brought up bill gates because you know talk about somebody who's being demonized right now and what i see in bill gates is is certainly a lot of myself and i think that when we hurl hate and anger at somebody like that what we're really hating is that we've made ourselves so dependent on that person. None of us can log on to a freaking computer without making Bill Gates richer. Like none of us can, can log on to, to our own curiosity on Google without making the forces that be richer. And so we don't really hate those people. We hate that we've become so codependent on them and that we are actually the problem. The consumers created those companies. They, no company can create billions of dollars of self-worth. <laughs> Companies have to inspire consumers to put that kind of worth in them. And so I think that's why we are so eager to hurl hate at any famous person. We build people up so we can tear them down because what we're seeing is, is our own sadness about our failure to, to go on a similar trajectory. And, and so it's, it's out of our sense of failure, our sense of, you know, oh, they took my opportunity or, or they had opportunities I didn't have that keeps us in such a low vibration force. And so anybody in the public eye, any politician, are they really all off? No, my God, you know, public servants are some of those worst paid positions on the planet. Like, why does anybody become a politician? Like, it's, it's bizarre. Unless they have an altruistic desire to really shift the reality we live in and change the dream. And I feel the same way about physicians and all the scientists that go in the pharmaceutical company. Nobody goes into that to try to take over the world and extract and abuse, you know, cause paralysis in children in, in Africa by untested vaccines. That's not, that's not what any of us went into this industry for. It happened because of the, you know, the crisis of, of combining market forces, capitalism, with you know a broad spectrum enterprise of a domineering empire of the United States, and and that created a perfect storm to create the toxicity that we see and the you know short-sighted and inhumane decisions being made on the ground. But it's not the people; it's all of us created this. You know, we're looking at our own subconscious when we look at the the things we hate. So I'm really glad you brought that up because it, it's easy to stole some individual in the public eye. And I feel like I get blessed by that a lot. Like, oh, Zach's doing a lot of important things. Like, I don't even know if what I'm doing is terribly important, but I sure have a lot of fun doing it. And it's <laughs> very exciting to like work with other human beings that I'm always like mind blown by the stuff they're coming up with and the beauty they create. And that's, that's what I am doing. And then at the same time, you know, for the, all of the undeserved or misunderstood adoration that we pour out on a few people we for 32 others we will pour out hate and we'll, we'll pour out our nasty vinegar on and and in the end you're just pouring yourself out on the world and if you saw the beauty you, if you poured out the hate it was yours and there's a need for responsibility there we need need to move away from ethics and towards integrity ethics is when integrity has failed and then we start to make these ethical judgment calls of good or bad or evil or light or whatever it is. Those are ethical constructs which are only out of our imagination. They don't have any reality. What solves for that is integrity. And so if you're sitting here listening to this and you're like, what the hell did I just hear for the last hour and a half? None of it. It sounded kind of funny at times. sounded stupid at other times. Zach is clearly not a biophysicist or an astrophysicist. He has no idea what he's talking about. String theory, like, I always get that feedback. I'm like, 
course I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. When did I tell you I was going to know what I was talking about? <laughs> I wouldn't have gotten three subspecialties in medicine if I thought I knew what I was talking about. I was stopped at the first one. I, I kept going because I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. And I feel that way today. Why, why am I doing anything? Well, I haven't figured it out yet. I'm curious to see what it's all about. And let's push forward. So, you know, all of your criticisms that you're feeling towards whatever you've heard from me is, are right. Like, of course, you know, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And if you heard anything that resonated, you're resonating with yourself. Like, I'm just a tuning fork smacking my head against the wall. And if I'm resonating to something that you like, then that's you. You're the A string that's resonating right there. And so I'm excited by the possibility that you start vibrating is something I say because we could follow up on that. And what if you now took whatever you came out of this thing and you go and pound your head against the wall and say, boom, that's what I just resonated to. Who wants to hear that? And you're going to find five people tomorrow that resonate, whatever that one thing is. And if those five people go and hit their head against the wall and start to hum, we are going to start to resonate as a species. And we've never gotten to do that. We've always been divided. We've always been fractured apart and blown apart on purpose to allow for you know, sequestration of resource and all this we start allowing ourselves to truly resonate and not be held down by our disappointments in ourselves, our perceived failures and all that, it's going to get so freaking fun. <laughs> what you said earlier about being, where are the investigative journalists? And it's a question that I've asked for, for quite some time. And I've been fortunate enough to meet some of the, the old school investigative journalists and some of the new school ones. I feel like this conversation today has been to encourage our own investigative nature into ourself and to the, what it means to be a human being with a soul and what our purpose is individually and collectively. And if we could all wear that detective hat, I think we'll all come to the same conclusion, which will be unique for every single one of us. That's beautiful. I think that's a good point to end on right there. <laughs> that's it. Zach. Thank you so much, brother. And until we meet again, I look forward to everything that all of us manifest into this beautiful gift of life. Thank you, brother. Love you. Thanks, Pete. I appreciate you, man. Thanks for having me on. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed their health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows, and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions 
experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast podcast.